0: Hey, I was waiting for that. The on my screen are too small here. Good to go? We're good. All right. All right, guys. Uh, if you want to grab your Bibles, we are going to be in Psalm 133. Psalm 133. I think it is either the shortest, or one of the shortest psalms in the Book of Psalms, and, uh, but it's a good one. Um, When I was at General Assembly this past year, kind of the gathering of our um, whole denomination, uh, we sang this at the end of our, you can kind of sing the the psalms for some of you guys who uh, didn't grow up in that kind of tradition, but so you can sing the psalms, uh, kind of to a, a metric meter and whatnot. And uh, we sung this psalm at the end saying how good it is for us to dwell in unity. And so we talked about, or we sung about this idea of the brothers uh, coming together, uh, the pastors of our denomination to care and shepherd for it and how good it was. So today... Uh, my prayer is that we, as we dive into Psalm 133, that we would benefit uh, in the same way. Uh, that we would understand what it means to be a unified whole as a church and with the greater church of Jesus Christ at large. Okay, So why don't we all stand up and uh, we are going to read Psalm 133. It's only three short verses. All right, Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down the, upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing. Even life forevermore. A word of the Lord. You guys can take a seat. Alright, so as we begin, I'm sure that we have all heard and know the phrase of the three musketeers. What is it? Yes? What is it? All for one, one for all. Alright, that's right, all for one. One for all. Though they were individuals, they fought as a collective group uh, to carry out their task. Now, this phrase we probably most of us have heard: "E pluribus unum." What does that mean? Anybody? Hear that? Uh close. Out of many, one. Out of many, one. Thank you. Out of many, one. Right. And uh, we see that on our, our dollar, um, our one dollar bill, right? Uh, I don't know if it's on the other dollar bills, but um, basically it talks about us as a unified nation, right? Although we are very diverse and we come from all over the place and, and we all look different and talk different and have different um, things that we like to do, we are a unified country. Well, this morning we're going to talk about this idea of unity from the Bible. OK, and we're going to see that because Christian unity is good and pleasant, we should continually seek it and fight for it in our church. I was studying this psalmist this, uh, this week and I really was thinking about this message of unity and how important it is for us as a church to get it and to live it. And we'll talk about why. Well, we have two points this morning. The first one we're going to look at is the description of Christian unity from this psalm. So first, we're going to look at the description of Christian unity. Psalm 133 is a part of a series of psalms. I think it's 120 to 135, maybe, or 37. It's called the Psalm of Ascents. Ascents. And so the, the psalms were originally prayed or, or sung, as Jewish pilgrims would travel up to Jerusalem uh, for different special days, um, you know, the high holy days, that kind of thing in the Jewish religion. And so this theme of this Psalm of Ascent is unity. There are different themes. You know, we've, I've preached on Psalm 127 before, which is also a Psalm of Ascent. But this one is Unity. And in these three short verses, David gives us a description of Christian unity, and he does it through using two um, similes and then this idea of a blessing afterwards. So let's dive into verse one. I'll read it again for us. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. David uses these two words right off the bat to say it is pleasant. And it is good. So obviously we see from the start that unity is a very good thing, right? The scripture says this is something that you and I should think about, should love, should want. We weren't meant to live lives solo or on our own. We were meant to live life together. That's what the church is, the people of God dwelling and doing life together, Oftentimes when our family sits down at the dinner table, our kids learn the difference between good and pleasant. What do I mean by that? There are things that we tell them that they just have to eat, right? Because it's good for them. And uh, we know, me and Katie will fight with our kids, but they will sit at the table, they'll look at what we have on the table, and they'll tell us whether they like it or not. They'll tell us whether it's pleasant. And we say, I don't care if it's pleasant, it's good for you. Eat it. Your Brussels sprouts, your greens, whatever it may be. Okay? But there are other things that when we serve at the table are pleasant. Things that our kids get really excited about. Mac and cheese, you know, biscuits, biscuits. all these different things, right? On Friday we had biscuits and gravy. They weren't too excited about that, but I was very excited about that. <laughs> they learn the difference quickly at the table between good and pleasant. And sometimes meals are both good and pleasant. Well, you guys get the point. Charles Spurgeon, in a similar way, said this. All men love pleasant things. And yet it frequently happens that the pleasure is evil. But there, the condition is as good as it is pleasant. As pleasant as it is good. So what he's saying here is that when it comes to Christian unity, it is both good for us and pleasant. It's not one or the other. Both are true when it comes to Christian unity. The question is, do we see it that way? Do we see it as both good for us and pleasant? And are we fighting for it accordingly? See, unity is not some momentary thing here one minute and gone the next. No, in this, we see a different type of unity. The unity that is here one minute and gone the next is the world's unity. Maybe we see that in our own political parties, right? They come together for a, a joint declaration or a joint um, venture together, only for a little bit, and then they go back to fighting. No, the kind of unity that we see here that David talks about is dwelling in unity that word to dwell means to abide to live in kind of your mode of operation is unity it's a constant permanent idea to make one's home is that idea of dwelling our home as it were is unity it's something that lasts for you and for me And David doesn't stop painting this compelling uh, picture of Christian unity. He goes on in verses two and three to describe the goodness and the pleasantness of unity by talking about two similes that we're going to look at now. The first one is verse two. It says it is like the precious oil on the head running down the beard on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. Now, I must admit that these two illustrations, these two similes are kind of hard for us as 21st century Christians to understand. We know that they're pointing to the goodness and pleasantness of unity, but we have to understand some of the original context to make it make more sense for us. Right. If I were to sit up here and kind of pour vegetable oil or olive oil over my beard and let it drip down, you would kind of like look at that. Like, that's kind of weird. I don't understand why he's doing that. But when we look back at the original context of the Jewish pilgrims and the Old Testament, it makes a whole lot more sense. Exodus 30 gives us the background to this important and precious oil running down the beard of Aaron. See, remember, Aaron and his family were chosen by God to be the priest of God's people. They were set apart for this one office, kind of like a pastor is set apart this office for the church. They were set apart of taking care of the sacrificial system for the Jews as God lays it out. We find this out in Exodus 30. okay, And even the first few books of the Old Testament that lay out this whole sacrificial system because of our sin. Well, this oil in Exodus 30, we find out, is a special mix of oil and spices. And it's a special oil only to be used for the consecration or the setting apart of the priests. The priests are the only ones to use this oil. It's not common oil for cooking or for any other purpose, but for the setting apart of the priest on behalf of the people. That's the picture that David's pointing here in verse 2. So how does this uh, illustration speak to Christian unity? Well, I think at least in three ways. Although there may be some more. One, it shows Christian unity's preciousness. This oil was precious. It was used only in certain times and certain contexts. So it speaks to something that is precious. Something that is set apart for a particular use. It also sets out the purpose of Christian unity. It's the consecration of God's people from the world. When we gather together as a whole, we are saying that we are different. As we pursue holiness, as God defines it in the scriptures, we are, as his Bible says, a city on a hill or a light that's shining in darkness. And so, yes, our lives look different from the world around us, and they should. We are set apart just like this oil was set apart. In our preparation for worship, we looked at John 17. And this is a prayer of unity. It's a prayer of Jesus for his church. What's what's one big thing that he prays for as he is going to the cross and going to be leaving his disciples? He's praying that they may be one. And that you and I who would believe in their message would be one. That's Jesus' prayer for the church. Well, thirdly, this uh, illustration, commentators say, it kind of points out the abundance or the, uh, of goodness and the expansiveness of Christian unity, as shown kind of by the abundance of the oil. It's not just a little bit of oil. It's the oil that drips down the beard all the way onto the robe, has this idea of plentifulness, of, of abundance in comparison to Christian unity. Well, that's not the only metaphor or or simile, sorry, that uh, David uses. He uses another one as well. We see it in verse three. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. We've probably all stepped out early in the morning into our grass and experienced dew, right? That dew, it, it forms overnight, that kind of wet coat on the grass, Sometimes I'll wake up and go check on my garden early in the morning. i got to walk through that soggy grass. And so I don't really like dew in that sense, right? It gets that grass wet, my shoes wet, and i got to deal with wet socks. But the picture being painted here is actually a positive one of dew. Why is that? The dew of Hermon was not seen as an annoyance, but a welcome gift from the Lord. One commentator puts it this way. He says, Mount Hermon was a proverbial for its lush greenery even during the summer months. And so what I learned was that Mount Hermon was kind of the tallest mountain in the area. That dew that formed there trickled down and fed the rest of the area, particularly there in Jerusalem and Zion. It fed that area. So there was lush, green vegetation. The crops grew. And so it was a picture of something that was life-giving, Something that was nourishing. Well, to quote the same commentator again, he says this, the experience of the pilgrims is like that of refreshing dew of Hermon. Regardless of how harsh the condition of the pilgrimage, life or nature, the fellowship of the brotherhood of God's people was refreshing. So this illustration that David is painting for us is to show us that Christian unity, when we experience it, it is refreshing. It is reviving for our souls, for our own walks with the Lord. It spurs us on. The same is true of us, the people of God today. Christian unity is refreshing and revitalizing and life-giving to our souls individually and collectively. When we are unified in the vision of what God has called us to do here in Atlantic City, we can put up with a lot of hardship. When we are unified in our fellowship with one another, we can put up with each other's sin, each other's junk. When it pops its ugly face up, we can live in an environment where it is safe for us to own up to our sin, to ask forgiveness, to repent, and to move on. When we are unified in our desire to pursue Christ together and to grow in our maturity, it is life-giving to our own walks with the Lord and our maturity as a church. Another thing that happens when we are unified is that we can bear one another's burdens. When you and I are unified with one another and unified with Christ, we can give our lives away to those that need God's help. But you know what? The opposite is true as well. Christian disunity is draining, is defeating. It weighs on the souls of us as individuals and us as a church. When there's a lack of unity in the church, we dread coming to church. We dread coming on a Sunday morning. We dread coming on a Wednesday because we just don't want to do it. When there's a lack of unity in our church, we start pointing the finger, voicing our unhelpful complaints or in an unhelpful way. When there's a lack of unity, we start valuing our gifts above other people's gifts. We start valuing our personalities over other people's personalities. We start saying that, you know what, we don't need the whole diversity of God's body. We just want this because that's how I am. That's what I like. That is my preference, my style of worship or whatever it may be. When there's a lack of unity in our church, we begin to think only in terms of self-preservation. How can I keep myself going? Forget about this person. Forget about that person. I'm looking out for me. That's what happens when there is a lack of unity. We have seen that it's both life-giving, when we have it, and on the opposite, that it can destroy our church when we are not unified. David goes on to talk about the blessing and the blessings of Christian unity in verse 3. It says this, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So when David says there, what's he referring to? In short, he's referring to the place of Christian unity. The blessing of God, which we are about to unpack, is experienced where Christian unity is present. Where we are one. So when we are dwelling together in Christian unity, we experience the blessing of God. That blessing that God commands and that we can take as a sure thing is life forevermore. At first glance, you may think the topic of eternal life or being with God forever seems kind of unrelated to the idea of Christian unity. And it did to me at first as well. But as I began to think about the connections, it made sense how David lays it out in this short little song. And so for for starters, we know that we as Christians, if we believe in Jesus, that we will be with God forever. We know that we will be forgiven of our sins. We will be with God forever and we will dwell with his people in perfect unity. We know that's the end game. We know that's where we're going to be. One day we won't fight. One day we won't hate on each other. We will perfectly be in unity as God's church. All of the diversity of God's church will come together under the umbrella of Jesus Christ. And that will be our greatest joy. And that will be the joy of eternal life. And so the picture being painted here is that the earth, that the church here on earth, is a taste of what we're going to experience in heaven. Right? The unity that you and I enjoy on a week in, week out, day in, day out basis is a picture of the heavenly unity that we will one day enjoy. Just like the gathering of the pilgrims in Jerusalem is a small picture of the gathering of the saints in the new Jerusalem, as we gather today as God's church, it's also a picture of the new Jerusalem, of the heavenly city that we will dwell in with God for all eternity. Matthew Henry puts it this way, those that dwell in love not only dwell in God, but do already dwell in heaven. As the perfection of love is the blessedness of heaven, so the sincerity of love is the earnest of that blessedness. Those that live in love and peace shall have the God of love and peace with them now, and they shall be with him shortly, for, with him forever, in the world of endless love and peace. How good then it is it, and how pleasant He's talking about love, meaning he's using that word love for unity. He's saying that this is a foretaste. This is a, a preview of what is to come. That as we dwell together and do life together as a unified whole, that we get a taste of heaven. That we experience what we were made for. That we were not made to live on our own. When we gather on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights and throughout the week, we experience that taste of heaven. This unity, which is being of one mind and heart, crosses all kinds of human barriers. We preach that from the scriptures as a church here. We say that it crosses the barriers of class. It crosses the barriers of race. It crosses the barriers that are ethnic and social and economic We love the diverse bride of Jesus Christ here as a church. We fight for that because we believe that's what God wants for his church. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation coming together and worshiping Jesus Christ. But this unity that we experience now in part and full in heaven should not be confused with the idea of uniformity. Unity is different from uniformity. Let's talk about that for a minute. Unity is a biblical virtue. It's a oneness and a togetherness in Christ. But uniformity is everyone looking the same, being the same, doing the same things, liking the same things across the board. It allows no difference between us. In the church of Jesus Christ, there can be a diversity within our unity. Maybe that's a surprise to some. Maybe that sounds a little bit pluralistic. It sounds a little bit tolerant or new age to say, hey, you can do your thing and you can be a part of this uh, this church. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is there can be diversity in our personalities, in our gifts. There can be a personality in the way that we look, the things that we like to do. There can be a, 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 a unity in or sorry, diversity, in our worship styles, as a church. And that's OK. We are to have unity in our core tenets and beliefs. We're all on the same page about who God is and what is the gospel. We're all on the same page about what it means to be a Christian. But we're not saying that every person's belief and every religious belief is valid and equal. That's not what we're saying. That's not what the scriptures say. Unity in a diversity of gifts and personalities and interests and hobbies. Those are all good things. I don't want you to be like me. And I don't want me to be like you. God made you distinct and God made you different from me so that you might benefit the body of Christ in a way that I cannot. And so there is diversity in unity. Uniformity is not necessarily what the Bible is talking about here. It's unity of the diverse bride of Jesus Christ. It's important for us to get that. A lot of times as a church, we don't get that. And we say, if you don't like this worship style, you can find another church. Or if you don't look like me, talk like me, or dress like me, you can find another church. That's wrong, that's sinful. Charles Spurgeon said that we can dispense with uniformity if we possess unity. We can get rid of this idea of uniformity if we actually have true biblical unity. This blessing of unity, of oneness and togetherness, is to be tasted here on earth. That's our hope and our desire as a church, that you and I would experience this as we gather together. And I want to say it's worth the fight. Satan would love to destroy our unity. He would love to destroy our unity in subtle ways, in getting us agitated at one another and against each other, And soon enough, what would happen? We break down. Our small little fellowship is what? Dispersed. Because we can't work things out. Satan would love to see that happen. Even in Bible study, as we talk about spiritual warfare from Ephesians 6, we have to be unified together as we fight the good fight. Or else Satan will seek to destroy us and devour us. Earlier I referenced Jesus' high priestly prayer from John 17 where he prayed for the unity of his church. He prayed for that unity as he knew what was coming. He knew the cross was before him. And as that cross was before him, the only way that we could be one with God and we could be one with one another is if Jesus went to that cross. That's the only way that Jesus' prayer could be answered. And so Jesus did. He went willingly to that cross. He was mocked and scorned and beaten. He took our sins upon him, even though he lived a perfect life. That is the only way that we could be unified together. Jesus broke that barrier between us and God. And he broke that barrier between us and each other. That vertical barrier and that, that horizontal barrier. Only Jesus' death could accomplish that. Only by faith alone, in Christ alone, can we be the unified whole that Jesus prayed for us to be in John 17. In this sense, Jesus fulfilled Psalm 133. He made it possible, he made it a reality that Psalm 133 could be for his church. Because he did what he did for us. I picked this song because I think it's important for us as we begin another year to think about the idea of unity. There are so many things that can destroy us. There are so many things that can separate us as a church, especially as a small fellowship. We're going to get on each other's nerves. We're going to commit sin against one another. We're going to do things that another person doesn't like. And we're going to have a choice whether we're going to fight for unity or we're going to be okay with disunity. Are we going to give Satan a foothold and let him destroy us? Or are we going to trust in Christ and step out in faith and say, this is worth fighting for? The vision that we put out each and every week about what type of church that we want to be and what kind of church we want to see reproduced around us. It's worth fighting for. But we can only fight for that if we are unified together of one heart and one mind. I want to close reading one pastor's prayer and exhortation to the church based on Psalm 132. He says this of this rare virtue, not the love which comes and goes, but that which dwells, not the spirit which separates and secludes, but that which dwells together, not that mind which is all for debate and difference, but that which dwells together in unity. Never shall we know the full power of the anointing until we are one heart and one spirit, Never will the sacred dew of the Spirit descend in all its fullness till we are perfectly joined together in the same mind. Never will the covenanted and commanded blessing come forth from the Lord our God till once again we shall have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Lord, lead us into this most precious spiritual unity. For thy son's sake, amen. That is our prayer. That's our desire. That's the Lord's desire for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this short little song. Uh, Lord, it's my first time uh, studying uh, this psalm really in depth, and it's a beautiful one. Lord, it's a picture of what we yearn for. We may fight, and we may bicker, just like any family does. And yet we long for the unity as described in this passage. And yet, Lord, we confess that many times we've just been content with being on our own, being so low, looking out for only number one. And so, Lord, we ask forgiveness. The places where we have uh, not fought for Christian unity in our church or the church at large, we pray, Lord, that you would convict us over that that she would search our hearts as we pray during our time of confession. And Lord, that she would bring us to that way of everlasting, that everlasting life that we will experience in full in heaven one day and in part here on this earth. Father, we know this is a God-sized prayer. We pray that you would keep New City Fellowship together and unify even in our diversity we pray that you would bring together the diverse bride of Jesus Christ here in Atlantic City together under the unity of Jesus. That's our prayer. seems impossible to a world that so easily fights and bickers and separates and entrenches themselves in their own corners, and yet we pray for you to do the impossible for us. And we pray that you would do it for your glory, for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name.